Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, sorry for the long hiatus here, but uh, I finally caught COVID, or it caught me. There's not much to report about my actual experience. It was not especially terrible, given the possibilities, but it was also not just a cold, either. I was left feeling quite grateful to have been vaccinated and boosted and to have had uh, Paxlovid available to me. Uh, I'm not sure what it did, apart from produce a truly galling taste in my mouth, but um, I just don't know what the counterfactual was. I don't know how I would have done if I hadn't taken it. Anyway, it was not a lot of fun, but it was also manageable. So, happy to be back and uh, to give you today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Jay Garfield. Jay is a professor in the humanities and professor of philosophy, logic, and Buddhist studies at Smith College, and he is also a visiting professor of Buddhist philosophy at Harvard Divinity School, and he is the author of, most recently, the book Losing Ourselves, Learning to Live Without a Self. And we get deep into that topic. Uh, I found it a really useful conversation. We talk about how the self is an illusion, must be an illusion, can't be what it seems, etc., from a wide variety of angles. And um, we do that fairly systematically. So I hope you find it both useful and interesting. I think the nature of what we are as subjects, as persons, as experiencers in the world really is central to everyone's concerns, whether they know that or not. It is, as I point out, inextricable from the question of why we suffer and how we can be happy, how we can live better lives, what it means to be a good person in the world, how how we can be ethical. Uh, All of these questions are interlinked. Anyway, we get deep into it. So, without further delay, I bring you Jay Garfield. I am here with Jay Garfield. Jay, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So, um, you are a philosopher who uh, is um, focused on areas that are really dear to my heart. Let's, um, before we jump in, can you summarize your your intellectual and, and academic background and orientation? Sure. I tend to move around a lot. That is, I work in foundations of cognitive science, philosophy of mind, logic, Indo-Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, cross-cultural hermeneutics, ethics, a little bit of this and that. I'm not really a specialist. Mm. Well, so I want to focus on the topic of your recent book, and that book is Losing Ourselves, Learning to Live Without a Self. And um, that is an, an explicitly Buddhist framing of the you know, uh, what could be considered one of the central mysteries slash paradoxes slash illusions of our being in the world. And so I, my goal for this conversation is to make the claim that the self is an illusion as uh, understandable as possible for people. I and mean, this is something that people find really inscrutable. Uh, e- even those who are seeking to penetrate this illusion through practices like meditation, I mean, even if they admit that this is a 
a worthy goal to um, have an insight on this front uh, and are not at all skeptical about it, they still find it very difficult to think about and, uh, and to say nothing of all of the people who think it's a preposterous claim on its face and that it sounds even undesirable if such a thing could be understood or, or experienced directly. So um, before we jump into that central question, and, and either this will link up with, with ethics and cognitive science and other areas, first tell me, how, how did you come to be influenced by the Buddhist framing of all of this? What's your entanglement with, sure. with Buddhism and, and, and meditation practice and any other related issue there? Sure. First, let me say that while there are certainly a lot of Buddhist ideas in this book, and I draw on some Buddhist texts, I also draw on the Western philosophical tradition, yep. in particular on the work of David Hume, but also contemporary phenomenology. So I really take it to be a more cross-cultural look at this than a specifically Buddhist look. But to answer your question, I began working in Buddhist philosophy quite a while ago, largely at the instigation of students at the college where I then taught at Hampshire College, who were really interested in Buddhist philosophy and dragged me into it kicking and screaming. And it was um, as a result of getting interested in teaching this material that it became an important research interest for me. And so for the last 30 years or so, I've been spending a lot of my intellectual time with Indian and Tibetan Buddhist texts and some East Asian Buddhist texts and trying to place them in conversation with Western philosophy and to bring Buddhist philosophy more into the mainstream of the philosophical curriculum around the world. I find the Buddhist tradition a very rich, very complex, very large tradition, and I think that to ignore Buddhist ideas when we're doing philosophy is simply um, irresponsible, given the, uh, the extent and the depth and the rigor of that tradition. And in particular, when we're thinking about questions like the nature of the human person or the nature of whether there's a self there or not, Buddhists have been working on this problem for a long time. Western philosophers have as well, of course, but the Buddhists have distinctive contributions. And when we place the Buddhist and the Western ideas together, we often get a lot more clarity. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah, yeah. And what, what's been your engagement with the methodologies whereby Buddhists have traditionally come to have their insights and opinions on, on these topics, specifically meditation? Yeah, well, there's a lot of methodologies within Buddhism, many different meditative traditions, but also a lot of specifically academic philosophical practice. I'm not a religious person, and I'm not uh, much of a meditator. I'm somebody who engages with this work philosophically, and that's something that many Buddhist scholars have done as well. Mm. I mean, there's always this myth that if you go to a Buddhist monastery, you're going to find lots of people sitting in meditation. In fact, what you find is lots of people sitting in classrooms, in offices, in kitchens, and people doing various jobs, but among those jobs, teaching and debating philosophy. And so I think of my practice as more in the line with academic Buddhist practice, mm. that is, working on ideas, debating, analyzing, writing, asking questions. That's what I do. Have you had more contact with Galupas than with any other tradition within Vajrayana Buddhism? Yes. My, my principal teachers in the Buddhist tradition have almost all been in the Galupa tradition, and many of the commentaries on which I rely and a lot of the work that I've translated is Galuk work 
Yeah. Though I also certainly read in other traditions. I'm not a sectarian defender of the Galuk lineage. I also read work in the Sakya, Kagyu, and Nyingma lineages, and in the Rima, or non-sectarian movement of the uh, 19th century. So I read pretty broadly in that area. And of course, when you're reading in Chinese and Japanese Buddhist philosophy, these Tibetan lineages have no relevance at all. So yep. I try to be pretty broad, but my, the p- people from whom I've learned the most are certainly people in the Galuk lineage. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that would certainly bias everything in the direction of scholastic, scholarly, philosophical emphasis you know, and conceptual analysis as being intrinsic to any path of practice. You know, you get you certainly get more of that with the Galupas than with uh, the Nyingmapas or Kagyu schools. That's true, uh, but of course, the Sakya lineage is also highly academic yeah. and scholastic. Yeah, and I think the way to put this is, if you're somebody like me, who's trained as a professional philosopher, and is trained to be scholastic, when you encounter the Galuk and the Sakya lineages, you kind of feel like you've come home. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's jump in here. The self. What do you think most people mean by the term self? So when we propose to the, the naive listener that the self is an illusion or yeah. it's a construct, and those, those are different claims, obviously, or yeah. that it's, it's not what it seems to be, what is the, the object that's coming under conceptual or empirical attack there? Sure. Let's begin by drawing a distinction and then by talking a bit about illusion and then coming to the self-illusion. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to be a little bit systematic here. There's a distinction that runs through my book and one that I think is very important between the self and the person. And so while I argue in the book that the self is a non-existent thing and a chimera, I'm not denying that we exist as persons, and I want to replace the idea that we exist as selves with the idea that we exist as persons. Yeah. The second thing to say is that when I think about illusion, I tend to think of this in a very Indian way. And in most Indian philosophical traditions, including the Buddhist tradition, an illusion is always defined as something that exists in one way, but appears in another way. So, for instance, when we say that a mirage is an illusion, we mean that it exists as a refraction pattern of light, but it appears to be water. When we look at the Mueller-Lyer illusion, we say that those two lines exist as equally long, but appear to be different. So, when I talk about the self-illusion, I'm going to be talking about the person existing as a person, but often illusorily taken to be a self. So what do I mean by a self? I mean by the self, the thing that we kind of instinctively, atavistically think that we are. The me that owns my body. The me that stands behind and owns my mind. The subject of my mental states. The agent that acts upon the world but isn't quite in the world. And it's a hard illusion to really get people to see, in part because it's so atavistic. And in part because when you put it into words, it sounds preposterous. So when I say that I naively and instinctively don't take myself to be my body or to be my mind, but to own them as a separate thing, well, that sounds crazy. 
but it is how we think. And mm. I use a thought experiment in the early part of the book to illustrate that. And the thought experiment's really simple. Just imagine somebody whose body you'd like to have if for a little while or for a long time. The moment you form that desire, whether the desire makes sense or not, you've told yourself that you are not your body, you're something that has a body, and that could, in principle, have some other body. And you can do the same thing with your mind. You can imagine a mind you would really love to have for a little while or for a long time. And if you can form that desire, then you don't regard yourself as identical to your mind. You regard yourself as something that has a mind and could have a very different mind maybe a better one, maybe a worse one. But it's that thing that we think of behind our experience, the thing that's pure subject and never object, mm. that's pure agent, that acts upon the world, that we take to be free of the causal nexus. That's the thing that I take to be the self. And I think that it's almost maybe a universal illusion that that's the way in which we exist, even though when we subject it to analysis, we find that it doesn't make a lot of sense. But we also find that lots of philosophy, not just Western philosophy, but also Indian philosophy, also philosophy in other traditions, takes that atavistic idea of a self and then ramifies it into a kind of philosophical theory about what that self must be like. In Greek, we get the suke, the kind of soul that then moves its way, works its way into the Judaic and Christian and Islamic traditions. In India, we get the Atman, the thing that persists through lives and remains constant while everything else changes. And what we get then is a kind of sophisticated philosophical theory about what that self might be like. And my take is that those theories are kind of like theories of how deep the water is in a mirage. You start out with something that doesn't exist and then try to figure out what its nature is. Hmm. Where what I think we need to do is to try to work our way out of that illusion and come to understand ourselves as persons, things that are part of the world, that are embedded in the world, that are embodied, that are interdependent, that are causally conditioned, that are kind of continua of psychophysical processes rather than individual things, and that, are in, that only exist in interaction with other persons in a social context. Mm. And if we understand ourselves that way, we get a much deeper and much richer understanding of what it is to be a human being. Yeah, so let me see if I can ground this in the experience of our listeners. This is something I've done at many points before in, in discussing meditation, but it's, uh, I think it's important to make this um, visceral for people because I, I think most people, many people intellectually would repudiate the concept of the self that you just put forward. You know, if yeah. I pulled in my friend Dan Dennett here, he would say, well, I don't believe in any self of that sort. I, the self I believe in is simply the person, right? The whole exactly. person. And he would be right to say that, but he would not be honest about the nature of most people's experience, virtually every person's experience, and I would allege his experience as well, which is that of being a kind of passenger in the body of a sort you just described, where you're, but most people don't feel identical to their bodies. They feel that they have bodies. They feel mm -hmm. that they're appropriating the body from some position of subjectivity, very likely in the head, right? They feel like a locus of consciousness and attention and will. This connects us to the perennial debate about the uh, nature of free will. And it's that 
inner homunculus, that sense that you're behind your eyes as a subject and therefore as a center to experience that we refer to when we say I or me most of the time. Now, of course, we, we do think of ourselves as, as people. We think of our bodies as being ours. We understand intellectually that, that whatever we are as minds and agents is arising out of the, the whole body. But when you pay attention, when you feel what in you is implicated when someone looks into your eyes or points at you or refers to you, when you become self-conscious before a crowd, there is this experience of being an inner subject that is threatened or implicated, right? You feel, and in that case, just take the case of acute self-consciousness, your own face becomes a kind of mask, right? You're not identical to your face, you're, you're behind your face, and in some sense your face is, is misbehaving. I mean, think, think of what it's like to be so embarrassed that you're blushing, right? And you're, and, and you're, you're so blushing, obviously, against your will, and you are the, the one implicated in the center of it all, feeling at war with your experience. And, you're, and, and in those moments, your body is in some sense part of the world, right? You are, you are the inner man or woman, and everything else is out there. And it is from that place of being this embattled subject that virtually everyone seeks to have a better experience in life, to get out of the position of always looking over your own shoulder and being abstracted away from your experience, but rather to have experiences that are so good and compelling that you're unified with them. And then we call these experiences flow experiences or peak experiences, those moments of unselfconscious unity with an athletic performance or an intellectual engagement or pure pleasure, whatever it is, those become highlights of the day and the rest is us as subjects thinking, 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 talking to ourselves in a way that is paradoxical and perhaps we can examine. But it is a subset of the person. It is the subject inside that is the self, whatever you may believe about its emergent dependency on the brain and the rest of the body and its entanglement with the world. Yeah, that's a very nice way of putting it. And I'd like to emphasize something that you said in passing. And that was you talked about having a kind of inner experience or inner world. And part of the self-illusion is the illusion that our experiences and our actions happen in a kind of inner space that's outside of physical space and time, mm. and that somehow physical space and time is all exterior to us, but that we have this inner life happening in an inner space. And what that does is it kind of removes us in consciousness from the world and takes the world to be something of which we're a kind of spectator, or upon which we can act, but to which we don't belong. And again, the moment we say it, it might sound crazy, so that nobody thinks that on reflection, perhaps. Well, some people probably do, but most of us don't. But the moment we stop reflecting, we fall right back into it, and that's the illusion. Just as you could measure those lines in the Mueller-Lyer diagram, convince yourself that they are the same length, but still, when you look at them, they look different. Just when we look at our experience, it feels broken into subject and object, inner and outer, agent and action. And that all implicates this idea of a non-spatio-temporal 
inner ego or self that inhabits our body and mind or makes use of our body and mind in engaging with the world. And that's the illusion that I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned with here. Okay, well, before we perform surgery on this concept and experience, mm-hmm. why do you think this is important? Right. I mean, this is. I'll. I'll. Yeah. I'll give you my answer in a in a second. But I, I would love to know what you think the significance of of all this all this inquiry is. I think it's important for several reasons. One reason is that I really do believe that part of our task as human beings is the Socratic task. Right. Know know thyself to try to understand who we are and what it is to lead a human life. And so the clearer we can get on that, the more we actually have a kind of authentic self-understanding. But the other issue is a moral issue. That is that very often the self-illusion functions as a kind of foundation for uh, moral egoism that I think can be extraordinarily corrosive. Mm. It also can be the foundation of a lot of moral reactive attitudes that can be very corrosive. Reactive attitudes like blame and anger, where we take other people to be selves acting freely and forget about the kinds of causal relations in which they're implicated. So I think that the self-illusion actually inhibits our relationships. I also think, as you pointed out earlier, the place where the self-illusion disappears is when we're in flow states. And when we're in flow states, we're in states of real expertise as well as states of real happiness. And if we can understand that the self-illusion is one that breaks flow and takes us out of real expertise and can often suck the joy out of our lives, then becoming more aware of the self-illusion might enable us to be more attentive to what brings us into flow and so lead us to live happier, more effective lives. So for Mm. all of those reasons, I think this isn't a matter of kind of idle philosophical curiosity, but one that can actually enrich our lives if we get clearer about it. Hmm. Yeah, I would I would just add that the the obverse side of that coin of flow is you know all of the psychological suffering that is anchored to this feeling of self, and when you yep. can cut through the illusion, that suffering itself can evaporate. Right? That is it. This insight into selflessness is a kind of, you know, psychologically speaking, a kind of universal solvent of psychological suffering. Uh, and that's really, I mean, that, that is the, the explicit promise of Buddhist you know, soteriology, right? I mean, the suffering and the end of suffering, right? We're talking, the whole Buddhist project was to, or the, the, the Buddha's whole project was to diagnose why we suffer and an insight into selflessness is at the root of the the remedy there. And I mean, I would just say personally, this is something, obviously I'm interested in the, the philosophical and conceptual side of this, but um, for me personally, being able to experience the illusoriness of the self has been the most important Thing I've ever learned in my life, and it's just it, with it, I mean, it's really it's really one without a second, and it it shouldn't be surprising that it can be experienced, right? Because it, we're, we're making Absolutely. a claim about what's true about the nature of consciousness in each moment, and the claim is not that there is a self 
And you can, by some process of analysis or meditative insight, get rid of it. It's no, there's, it, it is not there in the first place. And it can be discovered, its absence can be discovered in a way that changes the character of experience. I mean, its absence can be felt, its absence can be, be made salient. And that isn't a, not a claim that needs to be taken on faith by anyone. It's merely an empirical claim that is there to be investigated. So the goal of a conversation like this, you know, if not to actually precipitate that experience in the listener, is to make the terrain sound plausible enough that a person has some indication of, of where they would look to find it and the, you know, the, the path by which they, they might actually arrive there. So it's, I mean, we're essentially describing the map to the territory as clearly as we can. And to that end, let's talk about this from both the so-called objective or third-person side and the subjective or, or first-person side, because they, they yield substantially the same view in my experience, but they seem very different. From the third-person side, when we're talking about the physical universe uh, that includes bodies and brains and you know, everything that science and most of Western philosophy is going to acknowledge to be real, there, the existence of a truly separate self, a, a truly dualistic picture of what a, a person is, doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it's just, it's obvious from that point of view that there is simply the physical universe, and you are arising within it as an expression of it. You're inseparable from it materially. You're constantly exchanging atoms with it across the boundary of your skin. You're breathing yourself out and you're breathing in the environment. There is, no there is no real boundary that a physicist is going to want to fight for here. And it's on that basis that any radical disjunction between a person and the world can be denied. And, and this, is where, this is why a notion of free will, you know, as, as in libertarian free will, never made any sense to anyone who thought about it. I mean, it's just obvious that there's the total set of all that happens in the universe, and fully within that part of the Venn diagram as a subset of what happens are all the things that, quote, you do, right? Your actions are part of the physics of things and can't be otherwise. And so I, I guess throwing it back to you here, do you see that as a an incontestable and non-controversial starting point from the outside? Yeah, I think that's an extremely important starting point. I would only add one aspect to that, if I might, and that is that as hypersocial beings, which we are and which we, you know, we've evolved into that kind of status, we don't only find ourselves inseparably embedded in the physical universe, we find ourselves inseparably embedded in a social universe, mm. embedded with other people, with other persons. And that becomes extraordinarily important because one of the mechanisms of that embedding, one of the many mechanisms, is language. And when we acquire language, we acquire a medium through which we introspect and through which we understand ourselves that's entirely transformative. And we can have the kind of illusion that when I find myself, for instance, believing right now that I'm talking to you, 
that I do that by introspecting and finding a little sentence in there that says, hey, Jay, right now you're talking to Sam. But that's, of course, crazy. I'm interpreting my own, myself in terms of a language that's socially constituted. I understand myself as a philosopher or as a teacher or as a son or as a father in terms of social relations. And so we end up being constructed not as autonomous beings who enter a world and then interact with it, but we're constructed and emerge out of a world that is both physical and social. And everything we are reflects that fact and reflects that constant interdependence and that dynamic interplay between our bodies and the physical environment around us, between our psychological states and the psychological states of others. And you just can't understand who we are without that. I think that's extraordinarily important. Mm. And as you put it, if we were to do physics or chemistry or biology or psychology, we can do all of that and we do all of that without ever saying, oh yes, and then there's the self and we've got to think about that too, because it simply falls out of the equation. It's not part of that, that illusion isn't one that's propagated by our best science. Yeah, you used a, a word interdependent there, which um, obviously has um, Buddhist overtones and it links up with a, yeah. another concept of, that we might uh, refer to by the phrase uh, conventional existence of things. Yes. So maybe we should uh, explain some of that uh, or, or introduce some of those distinctions. And uh, you know, uh, in your book, you reference the um, the story of uh, King Melinda and Nagasena to do this, mm -hmm. and and you also uh, you use a few other examples. I you know Hume has um, an approach here with his church analogy. So maybe talk about the way in which the things you know, including people uh, in the world, exist, but their existence is a kind of paradox and uh, or things exist by convention which is not quite the same thing as something existing truly independently from everything else that's right oftentimes when people hear the idea of conventional truth as opposed to ultimate truth they think that what this is is a kind of second class sort of reality an ersatz sort of reality that isn't really real something you do until ultimate truth comes along. Mm. But that's a deep misunderstanding. So let's begin with the idea of dependent origination and then work our way into, con into conventional existence. When in the Buddhist world, we talk about dependent origination, we mean that everything that occurs, occurs in dependence on a vast network of countless causes and conditions. My speaking depends upon all kinds of things happening in my nervous system, but it also depends upon my being able to breathe and there being oxygen in the air. It depends upon the things that I've been taught, the things upon which I've reflected. It depends upon the fact that you're at the other end of this conversation and that I see you as an interlocutor. When we talk about that dependence in the Buddhist world, we often distinguish three different dimensions of that interdependence. The first, the one I've been stressing so far, is causal interdependence. Effects depend upon their causes, and there are many different kinds of causes, some of which are antecedent, some of which are simultaneous. We don't need to worry about that botany now, but even when you think about an ordinary event like, say, turning the lights on, 
You might say that flicking the switch is the cause. You might say that the power plant and the electric grid are the cause of the lights being on. You might say that your desire to read is the cause for the lights being on. All kinds of different causes to which we can appeal. So the causal nexus isn't linear. It's a real mesh. Hmm. But secondly, we talk about part-whole dependence. The technical term for that is myriological dependence. So a whole entity depends for its existence on its parts. I depend on my liver and my spleen and my lungs and my hair and all of that stuff to be who I am. But parts also depend upon their wholes. My heart can't function as a heart without being embedded in my body. My liver isn't my liver unless it's in me, and so forth. Or to take other kinds of analogies, the college at which I teach depends upon its faculty and its students and its library and its buildings and its administrators and so forth. But each of those things depends upon the college in order to be a classroom building or a teacher Hmm. or a student or an administrator. So that's a a bi-directional myriological interdependence. But the third form of interdependence, the hardest one for most people to get their minds around, but the most important one in some ways for the present purposes, is dependence on conceptual imputation. That is, things depend for their identities upon the ways in which we understand them. And I want to start with a really easy example to make that clear. And it's an example that I use throughout the book, and that's the example of money. If I've got a $5 bill in my hand, nobody denies that it's actually true that I've got $5 there, unless it's counterfeit, of course. But what I've got is a piece of paper in green ink. There's nothing about the paper and the green ink that make it worth $5. It's worth $5 because we've got the institution of the Federal Reserve, because I can exchange it for five ones, because I can buy something with it, people will accept it for, as, as, a, as a $5 note, unlike, say, an IOU or some Confederate money. And it's important to see that the identity of that piece of paper as a $5 note depends upon this vast network, not only of physical causes and conditions, but of conceptual activity that constitutes its value as a $5 note. I mean, after all, If I've got a $5 note and a $20 note, the paper and the ink are worth exactly the same in both of those cases. It's not like there's four times as much really cool paper and ink in the $20 note as there is in the five. But we have different conceptual responses to them. And those conceptual responses don't reflect the identity of the two notes as a five and a 10. Rather, they constitute that identity. And the more we look, the more we see that almost everything that we take seriously as a real existent is interdependent in all of these three senses. It's causally interdependent, it's myriologically interdependent, but it's also dependent for its identity on our conceptual resources. Now, Mm. that's important because when we think about things that are extended in time, like persons who often live for 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, And we think about the difference between what that person was when its body was brand new, when it first, you know, was delivered out of the womb, and what it might be like when it's an adult or an aged being. Those are very different bodies. But we unite them through a conceptual imputation by seeing that they're physically causally connected, that they share some parts, that they that one is the secret that one part of the sequence 
is caused by earlier parts of the sequence. And we conceptually decide to say, let's call that one thing. And that gives us a person. But that person is something that is every bit as constructed as an entity as a dollar bill is. But just because the dollar bill or the $20 bill or the $5 bill, just because the fact that those are constructed doesn't make them unreal, but rather describes that in which their reality consists, when we understand the constructed nature of our own identities, a construction in which we are not the only agents, in which other people participate as well, we see that our existence as constructed beings doesn't amount to our non-existence. Rather, it constitutes our mode of existence. Hmm. When we understand ourselves as persons, we understand ourselves as interdependent artifacts in that sense. Hume, in the, in the treatise of human nature, makes the beautiful point that human beings are natural artificers, that it, we are born to make things. Among the things we make are cookies and cakes, houses and cities, but we also make cultures. We also make ideas. And I think that the deepest part of this whole, um, our, our activity as artificers, is that one of the things that we make is ourselves. And in a lot of ways, we persons are the most sophisticated things that we human beings make as natural artificers. Mm. And so oftentimes, you can understand the illusion of the self as the illusion that something that we've in fact made was something that existed independently and that we just found. It would be as though you thought that here's how money originated. Somewhere on a beach, somebody saw lots of pieces of paper and coins and then noticed that they were each valuable and that you could exchange them for things and that you could put them in the bank. And so they started doing that. But that the value in the coins and the papers was just there before we did anything with them. Nobody would accept that view. I want to suggest that it's exactly that way with us, that we're not just great apes who happen to be to discover that they were persons, but we've constructed ourselves as persons and then erroneously think that that's because we noticed that we had selves. Okay, so I can imagine some listener being very skeptical about this analogy to the dollar. Mm -hmm. The claim would be, well, it's obvious that there are different types of existence uh, among all the, the myriad objects and properties in the world. And yes, yeah, some things are socially constructed. Some things only exist by virtue of our agreeing they, that they exist. And money is among those many things. You know, something is a dollar because we say it is. And the moment we stop saying it is, well, then it ceases to be that. And there are, you know, there are cocktail parties and corporations and other things might be constructed in this way. But there are other things that exist, whether or not we even know about them, much less have formed the right concepts about them and, and had conversations about them. So, you know, if a new virus comes flying out of a bat next week and begins to spread surreptitiously throughout the world, making people sick, well, that virus is what it is, whether we know about it or not. And its efficacy in making people sick will be what it, what it is, whether we've learned to even talk about it or not, much less cure it. So there are different ways in which things exist, and perhaps the self is much more like a, an, un, an unnamed virus 
than it is like a dollar that was the mere invention of people at a certain moment in time. And that the self has, and now I'm referencing your book and, and your own terminology, the self has the properties of priority and unity and subject-object duality and agency of the kind that we discover in ourselves. It's me in here, and I can think and do whatever the hell I want, and I have free will. I'm a me. Yes, I'm in my body, perhaps in some paradoxical way, and I'm sure I'm dependent on my brain in ways that I can't introspect about, but all of this highfalutin talk about interdependence and emergent causation and all the rest, maybe there's something of interest to, to say there with respect to the neuroscience of being a self or the, the, the information processing aspect of, of what's actually happening in my brain. But as a matter of phenomenology, as a matter of lived experience, there's a simple point of view that is as undeniable as any conceivable feature of experience. Uh, and it's that I'm me and I'm not you. And so none of what you've said really has put that into question. That's right. Not, nothing that I've said so far in this conversation has, but now maybe it's time to start doing that. Mm. Because what you've done is very ably characterized the self-illusion. And part of the, uh, the kind of tell there, the giveaway, is that you talked about it as a kind of undeniable phenomenological fact, a fact about our experience. And I think that we have to be really careful when we go from how things seem to us to how they are. Because, of course, we know that we're all subject to illusions of all kinds. Some of those illusions are what you might call accidental illusions, like the Mueller-Liar illusion that you've got to kind of, you, you encounter sometimes, but not others, or the bent stick illusion, or something like that. Other illusions are pretty constant. So, for instance, the illusion that our visual field is uniformly colored, or that it doesn't have a hole in the center of it. The illusion that our senses simply deliver the world to us just as they are, instead of thinking about perception as a complicated uh, neurological construction system, and so forth. So that we, can, we know that we can't simply go from the, the phenomenology to metaphysics directly. And so that's an important cautionary right there. Now, when we start looking at the properties that you correctly assigned to the illusory self, things like primordial independence, free agency, pure subjectivity, unity, simplicity, all of those, those are properties of the illusion. And we can kind of see that in a bunch of different ways. Let's start with the one that you've mentioned um, several times already and that I haven't really addressed, and that's the question of free agency. Oftentimes, especially in modern Western cultures, we part of the self-illusion is the illusion that we can literally do whatever we want, that we've got libertarian freedom. And that's the illusion that while everything else is part of the causal matrix, that somehow we stand outside of that causal matrix. The real locus classicus for that, of course, in the Western tradition is St. Augustine, who basically invented the idea of free will 
And when he did that, he invented two things. One was the idea of a will as a kind of component of, of the ego, and the other was its exemption from the laws of causality. And the theological reasons for doing that have to do with theodicy, and we don't have to go there. But it is worth pointing out that if you've taken a psychology course, you don't suddenly find, oh yes, and there's the will, that's the will part of the brain. Or first there's a cause, a perception, then there's a bit of will, and then there's an action. The idea of the will simply is completely inert in psychological mm -hmm. theory. Let's um, spell that out a little more, because it's a point that I'm embarrassed I've never made before, given my bona fides as a critic of organized religion and, and organized Abrahamic religion in particular. Mm -hmm. But this idea of the will from Augustine is really, the whole point is to get God off the hook for human evil, right? Because That's right. I mean, this is all about the Garden of Eden yeah. and the fall. Yeah. So and it's worth rem reminding ourselves of this, I guess. I mean, I don't want to bash the entire Christian tradition. That's not my, my, my axe to grind. But this one is a pretty serious one. <laughs> Augustine was worried about whose fault it was that we fell from Eden. And the problem is that if we understand God as omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent, it sounds like he should have known, he had to have known, that Eve was going to take the apple from the snake. He had to have really wanted her not to do that because he knew what a bad thing that was. And because he was omnipotent, he had to be able to stop it, but he didn't. And so if you put those things together, it makes it sound like the fall is God's fault. And Augustine was worried about that because you can't blame God for stuff like that. And the way that he got God off the hook was to invent this faculty of voluntas, of will, which was a new faculty to create. And he said that we have this general faculty to act. And what's more, that faculty is special in that it's exempted from causation. And so there's nothing God could have done because Eve was free and could do things free of causation. So even though he was omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, he couldn't have stopped her from doing what she freely did. Now, if you are worried about talking snakes and apples from magical trees and the origins of evil and a triple omni-god, then perhaps you should take the idea of a free will seriously. But my point here is that if that's not what drives you metaphysically, then you better recognize that that's the origin of this idea. And that to the extent that we think of ourselves as selves, and so as free agents outside of the causal nexus, even though we know that we are biological organisms in a causally determined world, then you've really got a crazy picture of who you are, an alienating picture. And it's a picture that, as I said earlier, both can lead to illegitimate feelings of pride, shame, guilt, I did this but can also lead to very dangerous attributions of blame and anger, failing to see that other people, just like me, fail to have this kind of free will. And I think that extirpating this myth of freedom is a really important task of philosophy. But what I'm trying to also do in this book is to show that that myth of freedom is tied deeply to the idea of the self. Yeah. And so one of the reasons that we want to say the self isn't something that we just found. It's because to find it, we'd have to find something 
that was causally exempt, and there isn't anything that's causally exempt. We also have to find something that's simple. And when we look at who we are, how we act, how we perceive, and how we understand, what we discover is a complex of constantly changing phenomena, not some simple single thing that persists through those phenomena. When we look at subjectivity, we don't find a single I lying behind all of that. We see perceptual subjectivity, affective subjectivity. Within perceptual subjectivity, auditory, visual, tactile, olfactory subjectivity. What we see is a complex, more like a committee than an individual thing. So when you start losing simplicity and, and this kind of perfect subject and free agency, you start seeing that this kind of mythical apparent thing really isn't there at all. It's as though you were looking at those lines of the mueller liar illusion, and as you erase the arrowheads on each side, the lines come back into a perception of equality. And mm -hmm. when you see them that way, you see them correctly. When we see ourselves as natural organisms in a, enmeshed in a causal nexus with an identity that we constitute, then you begin to see who we are. And that's very different from the I that I think that I am when I succumb to the self-illusion. Mm. Well, it's interesting. I think we, you can get there by taking the dualistic starting point of pure subjectivity seriously. So in taking duality seriously, one can move this way. I mean, you're, so you, you are the subject aware of objects. Mm -hmm. And you're this, you know, you're, let's, whatever your beliefs about this subject or not, leave that aside. But as a matter of experience, there is this experience to be had of just being a pure witness of all the things that can be noticed, sights, sounds, sensations, thoughts, feelings, etc., objects out in the world. And because you can be aware of them as objects, that testifies to the fact that they are not you, right? You are something else over here that is aiming attention like a spotlight upon all the, all the objects. And, and the fact that you can be aware of something proves that it's on the object side of the subject-object chasm and therefore not you, right? You are just the subject. But if you persist in doing that, what you notice is that this feeling of being a self is itself a kind of object, right? It is an appearance of a kind, however inscrutable. Otherwise, you would never sense that it was so, right? And, and certainly, you could never experience a loss of this feeling unless it is, in fact, a feeling, right? So there's some signature in experience that we're calling self. There is a sense that it feels like something to be me or in the middle. Right, that this thing that's being that we're criticizing, this thing we're saying doesn't exist, the denial of that critique feels like something, and if that feeling suddenly went away, then there'd be no basis upon which to say I'm a self in the appropriating experience from the middle of experience. And so, the, if you take this duality seriously, you notice that well, okay, consciousness. That, that which is aware of the feeling of self must be prior to it and actually unimplicated in it in the same way it's unimplicated in the existence of the water bottle I can see on my desk, 
right? That, that's over there as an object. And so this feeling in the face or in the head or in the body, whatever it is, the energetics of it, that whatever the signature is of feeling individuated internal to the body, that is itself a kind of object and therefore doesn't actually constrain what consciousness is in itself as a matter of experience. This is a, it's a logical point, but more importantly, it's a phenomenological one because you can, if you keep falling back into that position of just recognizing that everything, including this feeling of being a subject, is appearing all by itself in a condition that is aware of appearances, that you, you can begin to feel that the condition itself doesn't feel like I. It doesn't feel like a self, right? I mean, that, that is the, the, the way to punch through to this base layer of just consciousness and its contents, which can be experienced without that usual subject-object duality. That's right. And it's subject-object duality that's, you know, kind of the bogeyman in this particular context. Because yeah. when we experience the world through that duality, which we very often do, there's a kind of natural tendency to take that, that duality for granted. I mean, Husserl calls this the natural attitude, the attitude in which I simply take objects to exist independently, my subjectivity to exist independently. And what subjectivity does is it passively records the stuff that's happening outside, or sometimes if I turn it in, inward, passively records what's happening in inner space. The problem, of course, is that as you've pointed out, and as I argue in the book, that's a crazy model of what experience looks like. And you can see that, you know, if you think about how perceptual or affective experience is generated, it's not generated by having a kind of blank camera self aimed at the world. It's generated by constructing complicated representations of the external and the inner world based upon sensory stimulation. I mean, just think about visual perception for a minute as a kind of analogy here, and then we'll, then we'll extend that. If you just look at what's in front of you, like your water bottle or my desk full of clutter, the natural attitude is all of that stuff looks just like it looks, and because I've got great eyes, I see that just as it looks, because those properties are just conveyed right into myself somehow. Now, the moment we think about how vision actually works, we realize how stupid that is. Light is bouncing off of stuff outside of us. It is being refracted into our lens of our eye, turned upside down, refracted through jelly, encountering photoelectric cells on the back of our eye, creating electric potentials that travel up our optic nerve, broken into a dorsal and a ventral stream, and then generating a tremendous amount of neurological activity in the back of our brain. And none of that looks like the stuff on my desk. And what I end up with is a constructed representation of the stuff on my desk. And if I ask, gee, does that representation look like the real stuff? That doesn't even make sense, right? That doesn't even make mm. sense. Or if we think about the difference between how my dog sees the stuff on my desk, how a bee who's looking, seeing in the ultraviolet, the infrared spectrum, sees the stuff on my desk and the way I do. And then we ask, yeah, but who sees it right? That's a dumb question because each of us is constructing a world. That construction is a non-dual affair. It's a complete causal intermeshing of stuff outside of my body and stuff inside my body 
that that generates experience. Part of what's generated in that experience is the illusion that I'm simply recording it. That illusion Mm. is the illusion of self. So subject-object duality isn't something that we find in our experience. It's something we construct in our experience and then find introspectively. And when we find it introspectively, what we're finding is a representation of subject-object duality. But that doesn't mean that there's an actual subject and an actual object that are distinct from one another as thing perceived and as blank conscious perceiver. It means that that's how we thematize our experience. Mm. And the further we dive into the perceptual process or the the motor process or the affective process, the less we find that actual duality. And so partly what's going on when we say that the self is an illusion is that the subject-object duality framework in which the idea of a self makes sense is a complete superimposition on our experience that has nothing whatsoever to do with how experience is generated in the primordial sense. One thing to add here is that the, the, the neurological case for the illusoriness of the self is quite straightforward. It's, it's, yeah. When you just think of what a nervous system is doing or can do, I mean, one thing it can do, and one thing it has certainly been evolved to do, is to represent a world, right? I mean, to, yep. in, very much in the way to you construct just, just, a world. Yeah, but I mean, there is. We're not saying there is no world. We're not saying that there's only mind, right. right? We're not. We're not saying that that we're living in some kind of simulation. But effectively, we we are living in a kind of, as a matter of experience, in a kind of neurological simulation of something which is, a, just as you described, a, a construct that, that based on the kind of nervous systems we have, we are sectioning reality in ways that are different than the ways that dogs and bees and butterflies section reality, right? And so to say which one of those sectionings is true is a kind of a, a non sequitur. Yeah. And yet they're importantly different and very different things can be done on the basis of, of those uh, constructed life worlds, you know, it's not going to be lost on anyone that humans are, are capable of much more than bees and butterflies and dogs. And it's because of the differences in the constructions that, of which our nervous systems are capable in dialogue with whatever this thing is that we call reality. But we don't, we don't have reality in hand outside of our experience of it and the extensions of our experience that are, that are you know, the kind of tools we rely on scientifically. But as a matter of experience, there really is only experience. And again, it is, it is a constructed reality. So a, a, a nervous system can represent a world. It can also represent the body of the organism in the world as a kind of object in the world. And, and we do that, right? You see, you, you see the world in your visual field, but you also see your body as an appearance in that same visual field, and you sense your body in a variety of other ways, proprioceptively, etc. And you therefore you represent a relationship between your body and the world. And this again, this is something that your nervous system is doing. This is not a thing. This is a process, right? Yeah. This is a process that can become deranged based on yes. neurological injury, or you know, you can take a drug that makes you feel all of a sudden very differently. 
and there are illusions here. You can there's a there's a body swapping illusion that you can provoke by using video cameras uh, uh, in in a variety of ways. But in addition to this, what we do is we represent a self internal to the body, right? Yeah. We have we've got a world, we've got a body in the world, and then we think we have a self inside the body, and it should not surprise anyone that that is a process that can be interrupted. I mean, we can stop doing that. You can stop yeah. representing a self inside the body and still have a representation of a world and, a, and of your body in that world. So to live from the point of view of having realized the illusoriness of the self, to whatever degree a person achieves that, neurologically speaking, one description of that is that person is no longer at the level of their brain, engaged in a, a representation of a self internal to their body, they're simply representing their bodies in the world. I think that's exactly right. The only small correction I would make to everything that you just said is to remember that just as we can do far more than dogs and bees, dogs and bees can do far more than yeah. we can do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and that's important. I, I say that because people will sometimes say, yeah, 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 but look at evolution. We're hot, more highly evolved. And what that means is yeah, we're getting yeah, yeah. closer to reality than other beings are. For instance, David Marr in his vision book argues that while lower organisms only recognize features of the world, we represent the world as it is. And you just want to shake your head and say, the only world anybody can represent is the world as it's constructed by their sensory motor system. And that's true of a dog, a bee, or a person. Yeah, the, the only thing I would add there, I, mean, I, I totally take that point because it's, you know, the, obviously a dog, you know, through the sense of, of smell, can do much mm -hmm. more than, than we can imagine doing. But just epistemologically speaking, the, the realist in me would want to say, well, wh whatever reality is altogether, you can have a greater or lesser ability to conceive it, uh, manipulate it, interact with it, etc. And so you can just think of, I even just forget about other species. There's a subset of people on this earth who understand physics, and then there's yeah. the, re the rest of us who don't understand it as much as we might. And if all the physicists died in their sleep tonight, we would lose something, and, and one could describe that something as a larger picture of the reality in which we're entangled. Yeah. But I, but I guess I'm going to press the point and say, mutatis mutandis for dogs and bees and birds. Dogs perceive the world in terms of volumes of smell, for instance. We're not even aware of those things. Mm. We, can't par we can't parse reality that way. But by interacting with dogs, we learn that that's one of the dimensions of reality. Birds and bees can see in the ultraviolet and infrared, and so that flowers that look identical to us look very different to them. And by engaging with them through scientific instrumentation, we can't really talk to them, but learning how their visual systems operate, we learn that there's far more to reality than we see. And yeah. so if we lost dogs and lost bees, we would lose different things from that that we lose when we lose physicists. Right. But we would yeah. still be losing important dimensions of reality in that sense that they really do inhabit different worlds from the worlds that we do. And that's a way of understanding 
what it is for conventional reality to depend upon conceptual imputation. It's also a way yeah. of understanding, I mean, bringing this back to everyone's lived experience, it's a way of understanding how differently the world can appear based on you making changes to your conceptual apparatus, your modes of attention. It's possible to change the world, but it is also possible to change your mind such that you are inhabiting a, a very different world, you know, emotionally, Absolutely. socially, perceptually, etc. And that's the promise of lots of religious and philosophical systems. That's the promise of Buddhist practice. That's the promise of Epicurean and Stoic practice. Yeah. And also, I think, the promise of scientific practice. I mean, Paul Churchland, in his old book, Scientific Realism and the Plasticity of Mind, mm -hmm. makes the point that all you need to do is to go out into the night sky and locate the ecliptic and hold your eyes parallel to it for long enough, and you will get to feel the Earth rotating instead of the stars rotating. And it works. You can transform your perceptual experience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so back to duality. Uh, yeah. let, let, let's talk about where the concept of non-duality and perhaps emptiness mm -hmm. fit in here. How would you integrate those words into the conversation? Okay, so we've already been talking a bit about non-duality. So by duality in this context, we don't mean the idea that there's two things in the world. We mean the idea that somehow there's an irreconcilable ontological difference, an epistemological difference between subject and object, that we are subjects independently of our objects, that objects have the qualities they have independent of our perception of them, and that our subjectivity would persist even if we had no objects of consciousness, and that we come into accidental relationship with objects in experience. And we've been talking for quite a while about why that's crazy. Now, when we turn to the concept of emptiness that you've asked me to bring in, which is an idea that emerges in, in Buddhism and evolves in Buddhist traditions, it's not univocal, but I'm going to take a kind of a particular track through the, uh, through the Buddhist conceptual landscape there. You always have to ask when somebody says that something is empty, of what is it empty? Mm. So, for instance, I can assure you that my room right now is empty of elephants. There's no elephant here. But it's not empty of dogs. My dog is behind me, and it's not empty of me. Um, and it's not empty of clutter on my desk. If you took all that stuff out, you might say, oh, gee, okay, is the room now empty? Well, no, it wouldn't be empty of furniture and pictures. If I take all of those out, it might still be empty of, of those, but not empty of air, and so forth. So the first thing that we need to always do is to identify what the uh, Tibetan philosopher Tsongkhapa called the object of negation, the thing that we're trying to show is not there. That's why, for instance, in our investigation of the self, we begin by identifying what we mean by a self, so that when we find that the person is empty of a self, we know what we're talking about. Now, in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, there are two broad accounts of what that object of negation is, of what emptiness is. In the Madhyamaka tradition, the middle way tradition, that's grounded in the work of Nagarjuna and the perfection of wisdom sutras that were roughly coeval with Nagarjuna's life, 
we're talking about emptiness of intrinsic existence or intrinsic Mm. identity. And by that, what we mean is that things that appear to have particular kinds of properties, that appear to have an essence, that appear to be substances with attributes, are empty of that kind of existence. That things that appear to be independent are, in fact, interdependent. That things that appear to have their properties independent of our perception, in fact, depend upon those. So it's that kind of independent, intrinsic reality that is the object of emptiness in the Madhyamaka tradition. But in the Yogacara, the mind only, the idealist tradition or phenomenological tradition of Buddhism, the emptiness that we're talking about is emptiness of subject-object duality. And there, the illusion isn't that things simply exist intrinsically, but they don't. The illusion is that the world exists as we encounter it, and that we just happen to encounter it, Hmm. and that it exists as it is, independent of our subjectivity, and our subjectivity just records it, and that things are empty of that. And the idea there is that the world that we experience is always a world that we construct, that we create, that we inhabit. It's a world that is of phenomena that are as dependent upon our cognitive and psychological processes and the structure of our minds as they are on extramental conditions, but Mm. that they appear not to be so. They are empty of that independence. So Mm. the idea of subject-object duality and the idea of emptiness are very, very tightly connected. And one way of expressing, if we wanted to do this in explicitly Buddhist language, the thesis of a book like Losing Ourselves is that we persons are empty of selves. And in virtue of being empty of selves, our, the, our lived experience is in fact empty of the subject-object duality that we thematize when we introspect and characterize it. Hmm. Yeah, that was a fantastic delineation of those two strands of emptiness within Buddhism. I only even think I was aware that the connection between non-duality and, and emptiness, which is certainly the more important one for me as a matter of just my own practice, was um, a point first made in the Yogacara school. I mean, I, I have it courtesy of, of Dzogchen teaching, but I, I've, mm-hmm. I've never heard it so, linked Dzogchen there. inherits a lot of ideas, both from Madhyamaka and from Yogacara. Yeah. And it's really important to see that because it's emerging out of this movement in Tibet that was called the Great Madhyamaka, which was a kind of fusion of Madhyamaka and Yogacara inspired by Shantarakshita's work. Yeah. Um, so it's no accident that you, know, you encounter ideas from both of these schools when you move to indigenous Tibetan systems like Dzogchen. So, and and perhaps um, you can spell out what is meant by the title mind-only school of Buddhism. And what what does mind-only mean? That's a complex question. And it's complex because the intellectual tradition in the Buddhist world that is called mind-only, that the Sanskrit here would be chitta-matra, but also called Yogacara or Vinyapti Matra or Vinyanavada. Mm. That school is just vast, thousands and thousands of important texts and dozens and dozens of philosophers working in that school. And of course, it's got a very long history. 
So different people have meant different things by that expression. There are definitely texts in that school that can be read, and, and philosophers in that school, as pushing idealism, the idea that the only thing that really exists is mind and the external world is illusory. But that's only one strand in that school. Another strand is a phenomenological strand that argues mm. that the only thing that we can directly experience and that we can work with is our mind. And so that's where our attention ought to be. As my friend Dan Lusthaus puts it, mind only means that your mind is your only problem. Yeah, that's and great. And that's another strand. Another way of understanding this, though, the way that I kind of prefer to understand it, which is very much a kind of riff on the phenomenological reading, is that the objects of our direct experience, the world in which we function, is a world that only exists as it shows up for our kind of mind, the point that we were making a little bit earlier. The properties that I see, the visual properties of the objects around me, are dependent upon the structure of my visual system. The sounds that I'm hearing are dependent on the structure of my auditory system. My introspective awareness of myself is dependent upon the language and concepts in terms of which I introspect and self-ascribe properties. So the entire world I inhabit, whether I take it to be external or take it to be internal, is affected by the structure of my mind. And that without understanding that, I can't understand what it is to be an object of experience. Mm. So that if we ask what things are like, independent of our cognitive and sensory modalities, that question doesn't make any sense. And that's, the, the, I think, the real heart of mind-only philosophy. So at the foundation of this, of this school are the doctrine of three natures and three naturelessnesses that are developed in the um, Sutra Unraveling the Thought, the Samdhini Mochana Sutra. And there we get this idea that when we say that things are empty, we can understand that in three interrelated ways. One way is to say that they are empty of the properties that we ascribe to them, that I ascribe colors to the surfaces of flowers or to things on my desk, and I know that those properties aren't in the things themselves, but are constructed by my visual system and would be constructed differently by a different visual system. Another way of saying that things are empty is to say that they're causally empty, that they arise only in, in virtue of a complex of causes and conditions and not as unitary things. And another way to say that is that they are ultimately empty. That is that when we ask, well, what's its nature? I just want to know what the thing is. That's a question that doesn't make any sense because I can only ask the question, what is its nature for this particular kind of subjectivity at this particular moment? Right. And those are understood in terms of a way of thinking about the objects of experience, whether those objects are external or internal. We can ask about how we imagine them to be. We can ask about how they arise. And then we can ask about what they are, and that those are three very, very different questions. Right. The first question only takes us to the illusions we construct. The second explains how those illusions are possible. And the third says that if we want to try to understand them independently of our conceptual systems, there's nothing left to understand at all.
Okay, so yeah, maybe there's something to say about that final sentence, because to many scientifically or philosophically trained listeners, that seems to kick open the door to some kind of uh, philosophical irrealism, right, or anti-realism, where you're, it's just like, there is no reality beyond experience, or it seems to commit us to some kind of idealism, uh, something which a, a naturalistic epistemology would want to disavow. So, yeah. and I, I think that, I don't, I don't think it, that necessarily follows, but it can be heard to follow. So, for instance, I, I'm going to make a few claims here, which I think you will find unobjectionable, and, and perhaps you can tell me how to understand them in the terms you just sketched out of acknowledging the, the truth of emptiness and, and the mm-hmm. construction of everything based on the type of minds we have. You know, there were, there were mountains on earth long before there were people to experience or think about those mountains. There are places in the galaxy that really do exist that we will never see or think about specifically or name, and they exist uh, whether or not we think about or name them. What, what, do, you, what do you do with those claims? What, or, or, well, or, or how would you translate those claims into the kind of epistemology and, uh, and ontology you just sketched? Yeah. The first thing you do is you endorse them, because, of course, those claims are right about the world that we inhabit. Nothing I've said undermines a kind of robust empirical realism about the world. And I want to underline one way to put that. It's something that I said at the very beginning of our interview is that there's always a temptation to think that conventional reality is second-class reality, Mm -hmm. when in fact it's simply an analysis of what reality is. It's not a denial that things are real. It's an explanation of a mode of reality. But, But that kind of reality is consistent with and in fact forces us to a different kind of unreality. So when you ask, you know, are you a realist or not? The question, that's, that's not a question you can answer. The question is, what kind of realist are you and what kind of anti-realist are you? Because any sane person has to be realist in some sense and anti-realist in another. And so the point is here that the very realism that drives us to accept the existence of mountains before there were people and things happening in galaxies that are epistemically inaccessible to us, but that are nonetheless real, forces us to believe that all of our perceptual and conceptual access to the world is mediated by our brains, nervous systems, and other parts of our body. And that the way that that world shows up for us in our experience is constructed. And the properties we experience things as having are simply the properties that we are capable of detecting and representing. And so that the object of our experience, and that includes us, ourselves, when we introspect, are one and all constructed by the organisms that we are. Otherwise, we couldn't experience them. So the mountains that we see, if we ask, what are the properties of that mountain that was here before I was born and before anybody was born? And we say, oh yeah, well, it's kind of green because of all the trees on it, and it's got all these beautiful sounds, some chirping birds and so forth. All of those properties 
that we experience are constructed properties, properties constructed by the interaction of whatever is outside of us and whatever is inside of us, not properties that are simply out there that we detect. Mm -hmm. So in all of these ways, the kind of realism that we want to endorse itself loops back into a kind of anti-realism about the world that we actually experience. Not an anti-realism that says that that world is non-existent, but an anti-realism that tells us that that world is illusory, as it's often put in the Indian text, illusion-like, that it appears in one way but exists in another. Hmm. It appears to be dualistically related to our consciousness, but it's not. It appears to exist independently with the properties we ascribe to it, but it doesn't. It appears to exist intrinsically, but it doesn't. The objects that we see appear to exist independently, but they don't. So we need to have an illusionism that's coupled with our realism and to recognize that scientific realism and a kind of experiential illusionism are two sides of the same coin, not dueling positions. Mm. Yeah, to bring this back to the underlying neurology of it all and the, and the lived experience, I mean, th these claims can sound spooky, but they're completely straightforward. When you, the world you see with your open eyes, the, the world you see your body inhabit in this moment, you know, if you look down and you see your hands and you see them against the background of the rest of your, your, what's in your visual field, the, the, the world, that is, neurologically speaking, every bit as much a visionary experience as a, a dream is that you experience while you're sleeping, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is 100, what you experience as a matter of uh, your, your visual field is as much due to the activity in your visual cortex now as a dream vision ever is. That's Not even slightly right. less than that. It's just the only difference is the, the vision you're having now in the waking state with your eyes open is to some degree driven and constrained by the entanglement of your nervous system with the external world, that is, you know, light coming into your eyes. But the place you see with your eyes open, the world you see with your eyes open, is the same place where your mind is. It is your mind. I mean, you're, this, is, this is the same place in which you are thinking, in which your thoughts are arising. You can illustrate that for yourself by just visualizing something and foisting it upon the world. I mean, you can, you can hold out your hands and visualize a tiny elephant in your hands, right? Now, now some people are very good visualizers and some aren't, but most people will get a little intimation of something when they broadcast an elephant into their hands, and it'll be a different something than when they broadcast an apple or a chariot or a pair of skis, etc. So as I change those objects for you, you see a wisp of something that is superimposed on the world. All of this, as a matter of neurology, uh, requires the functioning of your visual cortex. Uh, right. and, you, and when you're broadcasting uh, objects there, you, we're, we're dealing with a kind of top-down modulation of the activity in your visual cortex. All of this is a, is a construction of mind, and that is, that is the place you see with your eyes open. right? You, and and so the, the claim about non-duality, the claim about the illusoriness of the self, is that the default experience that people are having of there being an experiencer 
in the middle of experience, to which experience refers, the self that is appropriate in experience, the, the locus of consciousness that's on the edge of experience, that thing is either also part of experience, and therefore there's only experience, or it doesn't exist at all, right? So it's like, it's like so if it, if it exists, it's part of experience and therefore is not, what, is not at all what it seems to be. Yep. And so there, there really is, as a matter of experience, only experience. So you're, you're not on the edge of it. You're not in the middle of it. There is simply everything that's arising coincident with the condition in which it's arising, which is a, subjectively speaking, we call consciousness. Objectively, you know, in a third-person sense, we can describe that at, at various different levels of of what people are uh, in relation to the rest of the world. But at at no point does it make sense to put a rider on the horse of consciousness here and say it it is this separable point of view to which everything refers. Yeah, and here's the real cool kicker for that one. What goes for the visual faculty that we've been focusing on in, as our central example mm-hmm. goes for the introspective faculty as well. One of the things that people learn when they start engaging with Indian philosophy is that in the Indian world, we always talk about six sense faculties, not five, because the introspective faculty is taken to have the same structure as the external senses. Mm-hmm. That is, it kind of detects objects and delivers them to us and helps and and constructs them. And it's worth pointing out that we have this powerful instinct, just as we take our visual faculty to deliver the world to us just as it is, and we know that that doesn't make any sense. We have this powerful tendency to think that our introspective sense faculty delivers our inner world, our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, our sensations to us, just as they are. But that makes just as little sense, Mm. because our introspective sense faculty can only deliver our inner states to us as they appear to and as they are constructed by that faculty. And so when we talk about the illusion that the external world just has the properties we see it to have, rather than that those properties are part of our construction, we have to apply the same principle to the inner world and say that we don't know ourselves immediately either, Mm. but rather we know our inner lives only through the mediation of the introspective faculty. And that's why to say, I look inside and just find myself or the for meanness or the, the subject behind that doesn't tell you anything at all. Because even if you found that, All that would tell you is that the way your experience appears to you in introspection is thematized in that way, not that there's a self there. Mm. Yeah, that also opens the door to an immense freedom to deconstruct and reconstruct your experience uh, internally, emotionally, subjectively. So, for instance, that, that is why an emotion like anxiety, say, can, is so open to being reframed and you know, compared to excitement as a matter of physiology such that it ceases to have its, the meaning it ha- held a moment before, right? So if you're feeling anxious about giving a lecture, and, the, and then, the, then you, you might reflect that 
the, the physiology of these butterflies are more or less indistinguishable from the way you feel when you're doing so, when you're about to do something that you, you find you know th- absolutely thrilling you know whether to you know bungee jumping or to, you know something that about which you're you you, you know you, you've taken uh, made a great effort to actually do and by intentionally conflating those two things you can actually change your experience of what anxiety is it ceases to have the same kind of implication to say nothing yep. of, of what it means to to actually let this, the feeling of self itself drop out of the experience of anxiety. I mean, that, that is an, another equalizing experience that is, um, that again, gives you a, a, a freedom that w- wouldn't otherwise be there if you thought the, there was this adamantine reality being correctly perceived that here's anxiety and I'm an anxious person. That's right, because it delivers immutability to you and essentialism to you, and those are just really poisonous. And just as the self-illusion delivers the idea that I'm the subject and everybody else is the object, and so delivers to me the prima facie justifiability of egoism, right? Or the kind of anisotropy of the moral sphere, as I kind of look at it. Yeah, yeah, and it also makes sense of... The role that our, our social entanglement with others plays in constructing who we are as people and as minds, and, and also just the fact that we can be more vi- uh, that our mental states can be more visible to others at times and, and perceptible right. to them than they are to ourselves. I mean, see, my my wife can know I'm angry before I know I'm angry, yeah. or will admit I'm angry. My wife knows I have a headache before I know I have a headache. More right. to the point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, um, Jay, is there anything we anything we haven't covered? Yeah, f- feel free to add anything here. But I'm I'm now mindful of your time. So is there okay? Is Just, there anything that you think we need to touch? One last thing I would say is one way to see this is that when we understand our interdependence with those around us, rather than the fact that we are the idea that we are independent entities that just happen to encounter one another then we understand the role that others have in constituting and making possible who we are. And that can allow an attitude of competition to be replaced by an attitude of gratitude. And gratitude itself can be extraordinarily liberating. Yeah. Well, Jay, it's been fascinating. Thank you for the tour of um, the inner and outer landscape. It's, um, well, thank you. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's been great. To remi- I'll remind people they can get your book, Losing Ourselves. And you've written other books, but uh, is, where, where else can they find you? You're, you're, at, uh, you're at Smith College mostly I'm now, right? I'm at Smith right? College and the Harvard Divinity School. Okay. And so I can easily be found there. If you just Google me, you'll find my email address. Uh, this book is Princeton University Press and uh, just came out a few weeks ago. Great. Yep. Well, thanks again. I hope our paths cross out in the real world at some point. Indeed. Thanks so much. 